enlightenment or the experience of nirvana happens when the mind achieves a certain kind of balance, a certain kind of equilibrium. And enlightenment does not in any way depend on being a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian or a Jew or a Tantric or a Mahayana or anything at all. It depends on this balance of mind only. There are certain factors, certain mental factors, which all have to be ripened and matured for this perfect balance, this perfect poise to take place. And these factors are called the factors of enlightenment. There are seven of them, seven mental qualities, seven mental factors, which all have to be developed and cultivated and ripened. And in that, in that ripening, in that maturity of these mental factors, comes that perfect balance of mind out of which the experience of nirvana can take place. The seven factors of enlightenment. The first of these factors is mindfulness. And mindfulness means remembering what the present object is in the moment, not allowing the mind to forget the present object. Gurdjieff called it self-remembering. Always this recollection of what it is that's happening. There are four foundations or four applications of mindfulness, four fields of application. The first is mindfulness of the body, which includes such things as mindfulness of breathing, of walking, of bodily activities, of sensations in the body. <coughs> that whole field of awareness which has to do with the material elements, right? in movement, heat, cold, vibration, heaviness, lightness, pain. The mindfulness of all the flow, the whole flow of material elements within the body is comprised in this first field of mindfulness. The second is mindfulness of feelings which means the awareness of the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality which is in every moment of consciousness. At every moment there is one of those three feelings present, either with any of the five, the five physical sense objects or with, with mental objects. There's always a concomitant feeling that is pleasantness, unpleasantness or neutrality. To be aware of these feelings is a very important application of mindfulness because it is precisely these feelings which condition our greed and hatred. That is, we cling to pleasant feelings, we cling to the pleasantness, the pleasure, and we have been conditioned to condemn the unpleasant. So our minds, when not trained in mindfulness, are always involved in this imbalance. Right? Clinging and condemning, greed and hatred, passion and aversion. Mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness, that is, being aware of the pleasantness and unpleasantness, without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with them, deconditions the mind. 
Whatever it is that comes, whether it's pleasure or pain, the mind remains balanced. Through the mindfulness of feelings, a very important application of mindfulness. The mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of consciousness. Mindfulness of consciousness is a very subtle, is a very subtle thing because consciousness is not tangible. There's nothing we can lay hold of and say this is consciousness because it is immaterial and very, very fleeting process. But it is very important to develop an awareness of the process of consciousness because we have a very deeply ingrained identification <coughs> with the knowing. This feeling that there is someone here who is knowing all experience, which creates the concept of knower, experiencer. Whereas in fact, knowing, experiencing, consciousness is a process like everything else, arising and passing away moment to moment. In every instant, we are being born and dying completely. Nothing is carried over from moment to moment. No element, no entity. Consciousness is born and dies in each instant. And to be mindful of that process, to make consciousness the object of awareness, is to begin to experience this knowing faculty as an impersonal process. So we no longer identify with the knowing. We no longer create the concept of self or of I or of knower who is receiving all this information. Mindfulness of consciousness. We need a very quiet, silent mind to observe the knowing process. But when we do that, when we develop that kind of awareness, it very much breaks up our attachment to the concept that there is someone behind this whole show, behind this mind-body process. When we see knowing, when we see consciousness in flow, in flux, as impermanent as everything else. Okay, mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of consciousness, the fourth field of mindfulness is that of mental states or mental factors. And they comprise all those qualities of mind which determine how the knowing relates to the object. Things like greed, hatred, delusion, love, generosity, energy, confidence, devotion, pliability, lightness, happiness, grief, sadness, all of the different mental factors should be made objects of mindfulness so that we experience them as part of the impersonal flow, not <coughs> getting caught up in them, not identifying them as being self. There is no one who is angry. Anger is there. There is no one who is wise. It is merely the working of particular mental factors expressing their own nature, functioning in their own way. They are all impermanent. So there is nothing to be elated about by the, by the uplifting factors, 
and nothing to be depressed about the unwholesome factors if we can simply be mindful of them, be aware of their flow, of their arising and passing away. Then the mind stays balanced. Through these four applications of mindfulness, on the body, on feelings, on consciousness and mental state, it covers the, the composition of our entire being, of mind and body. The whole field is covered through this cultivation of awareness. Mindfulness is a very powerful factor. It's powerful in several ways. First, it has the power to bring all the other factors of enlightenment together. If we are cultivating mindfulness, all the other mental qualities necessary to achieve that balance of mind, they all come through the development of mindfulness. It's like this big magnet at the center, attracting all the other wholesome qualities. Not only does it bring the other factors of enlightenment together, it keeps them in balance. Enlightenment happens out of a balanced state of mind. The whole meditation practice is a balancing act. Getting the mind to that perfect place of poise. And it's through the power of mindfulness that this happens. Simply to be aware of what it is that's happening in the moment. The Buddha said that he did not know of any other single factor which contributed so much to the arising of wholesome states and the diminishing of unwholesome ones as mindfulness. There's nothing else we have to do. No effort at purifying ourselves, no grasping or desperation for cultivating wholesome states, no anxiety about having unwholesome states present. None of that is necessary if we are simply aware of what's happening in the moment. It's so simple. The very awareness is the purifying force. To be mindful, to be aware, to notice what's happening without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it. <coughs> simply to observe the mind-body process. mindfulness, the first factor of enlightenment. The second one is the wisdom factor. And in this context, it is called investigation of the Dharma. That analytical quality of mind, non-conceptual, not analytical in the sense of thinking about things, but that kind of mind which is keenly investigating in silence, intuitively, what this process is all about. It's a very active mind, a very keen and alert mind, which is investigating the process, investigating the Dharma. What happens when this factor, when this factor is developed, this wisdom factor? It's like lighting a light in the mind, illuminating the mind so that everything is seen clearly. 
Wisdom is likened to bringing a lamp into a darkened room. In the dark, nothing can be seen. We can't see what's in the room or how things are working. As soon as we bring a lamp into the room, everything is revealed. Everything becomes distinct. There's a great deal of clarity. Wisdom is exactly that factor in the mind. It illuminates what it is that's happening. It's as if a light is brought into the darkness of our minds. Everything is opened up. What is it that's seen through the power of this illumination? First, it's seen that everything is impermanent. The whole process of mind and body is in flow, in flux. Nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp at. Not in the object, not in the knowing, not internally, not externally. Everything is in this continual state of flux and transience, impermanence. Experiencing this kind of impermanence, experiencing it very deeply in our being, is the beginning of letting go, of not grasping, of not clinging, because we see that there is nothing to cling to. Things are arising and passing away instantaneously in the moment. It's like trying to grasp at bubbles on water. As soon as you grasp it, it's gone, vanished. This state of impermanence, of microscopic impermanence, can be experienced very, very deeply in the meditation, when this wisdom factor is developed. When we illuminate our being through this, through this mental factor of investigation of the Dharma. The wisdom factor is the balance for the factor of devotion or faith. Faith is a spiritual faculty, and it helps to purify the mind. If it is not balanced by wisdom, it can very easily become blind faith or blind devotion, and that is an obstacle, that's a hindrance. Wisdom is the factor which keeps faith and devotion in balance. So it serves, it serves very many important roles. Okay, mindfulness, wisdom, or investigation of the Dharma. The third factor of enlightenment is energy or effort. The Buddha only points out the way to enlightenment. We all must walk upon the path for ourselves. As my teacher said very, very often, the Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. It didn't solve ours. We all have to solve our own problems. The Buddha discovered the path, the way. He drew the map for us. But we have to make the effort ourselves. No being can enlighten another being. We all, must, we all must develop that factor of energy and effort to walk upon the path. Nothing happens without effort. We can have the best intentions in the world. 
desiring all kinds of purity and freedom and enlightenment. And unless we make the effort, it does not come. It's said that effort or energy is the root of all achievement. A very important factor. It's a kind of wishful thinking to think that, well, we don't have to do anything and it's all going to come down to us. Our minds are going to get purified by themselves. It does happen by itself when there is proper effort. But it has to be very carefully understood. It is not the effort to attain something. Right? It is not a future-oriented effort. It is the effort to stay mindful in the moment. It's that energizing of the system right in the present. Not this, not this seeking for achievement or attainment or even enlightenment. The effort involved is the effort to be mindful, the effort to be awake, to be aware right now in the present moment. That's what this factor of enlightenment is. The energizing of the system just now. This mental, this mental factor of effort or energy opposes the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Right? When, when this factor of enlightenment is well cultivated, and there's a lot of effort and energy, and the mind is very alert and active, then the, the enemy, of sloth and torpor cannot work. It's not, it's not operative at that time. So it overcomes that hindrance, the development of this factor of enlightenment. Very important. To give an idea of, of why effort is necessary, the Buddha likened our spiritual state to three kinds of sick people. There's a kind of person who is sick And whether he takes the medicine or not, he's going to get better. There's a kind of person who is sick, and if he takes medicine, he's going to recover. And if he doesn't take the medicine, he's not going to recover. And there's the third kind of person who's sick, and whether he takes the medicine or not, he's not going to recover. People are in those three kinds of categories regarding their spiritual development. The first kind are those people who have been predicted to enlightenment by a Buddha. Right? Whatever they do, they're going to make it. Right? The Buddha saw that that's what's going to happen. They don't have to worry. The second class of people, which is most, if not all of us, if the effort is made, enlightenment can be attained. If effort is not made, it's not attained. Right? It depends upon what we do in the present moment. It's like that sick person, if he takes the medicine, he recovers. If he doesn't, he doesn't recover. The third kind of person is that, is that person who has committed one of a few kinds of very heavy deeds which prevent enlightenment in this lifetime, right? Because the karmic fruit of those deeds must be expressed. So whatever he does in this lifetime, enlightenment cannot be attained, although in, in the future it can be. 
So that's like the third person. Almost all of us are in that second category. If we make the effort, the possibility of enlightenment is there. Effort is very important. This effort to be mindful, this, this energy in the mind and body, right? to be aware of what's happening in the moment. Okay. Mindfulness, wisdom, effort. The fourth factor of enlightenment is rapture. Rapture of the mind. And what rapture means is a very keen interest in the object. Tremendous interest in what's happening in the moment. And the simile given to illustrate that kind of mental quality is that of a person who has been walking in the desert you know, for many days, and he's very hot and tired and thirsty and dirty and really weary. And then just a little way ahead of him, he sees this very cool and refreshing lake. The feeling of mind that is generated by seeing the lake, that keen, that overwhelming interest in the lake, that's what rapture means. And that's the quality of mind that is developed through the meditation. We develop this very keen interest in what's happening. The moment-to-moment unfolding of the mind-body process generates this kind of interest, this kind of rapture in the mind. And rapture is manifest in very many ways, and volumes have been written about different kinds of rapture. It results in tremendous lightness of the body and joy and easiness and pliability and flexibility. Very light. When the mind, when the mental factors of enlightenment have been developed, people who are, who are evolved, just at will they can fill their mind and body with rapture, with this kind of lightness. It's a very, it's a very beautiful quality, a very lightening one. And it, it is born of detachment. Rapture comes when we can observe what's happening in the moment without that grasping, without that possessiveness or attachment. In that state of detachment comes this quality of lightness, of freedom, of interest, a very joyful state. That's the, that's the fourth factor of enlightenment, is rapture. And it comes about in the course of the meditation practice. This is one of the factors which we are developing. Mindfulness, wisdom, energy, rapture. The fifth factor is tranquility. Tranquility of mind, calmness of mind. The example is given of that feeling of someone who's out in the hot sun and comes into the cool shade of a tree. This cooling out factor, cooling out of passion, cooling out of lust, calmness of mind. This overcomes the hindrance of sense desire, of lusting for sense pleasure, that, that burning passion 
is overcome by this factor of tranquility, of evenness, very peaceful quality of mind. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration, one-pointedness of mind. One-pointedness brings a certain strength to the mental processes. It makes our mind strong. A person with weak one-pointedness or weak, one, weak concentration cannot at all penetrate into the nature of the Dharma, into the nature of the process, because the mind stays very superficial, very scattered, flittering from object to object to object. Concentration gives a penetrating power to the mind, right? makes the mind very steady. And the example is given of a lamp or a candle in a windless place. The flame does not flicker, right? The flame does not waver because there is no wind. The concentrated mind works in that way. It's not wavering, it's not flickering, it's not, it's not going from object to object without, without depth. It's staying very steady on the object, very firm. Concentration is a very powerful factor. When samadhi is developed, it works to overcome all of the five hindrances. None of the enemies are at work when our samadhi is strong. It's a very tranquilizing, very steadying, very strengthening factor of mind, and it is indispensable for the development of wisdom. Without some degree of concentration, we cannot develop insight. A very important factor, samadhi. The last factor of enlightenment is equanimity. Equanimity means that balance of mind, not elated by nice things, not depressed by unpleasant things, impartial, not judging, not evaluating, the example is given of the sun which shines on all things equally. The sun does not choose, I'm going to shine on this and not on this. It is impartial. That is the equanimity factor of mind, the impartiality. Treating all objects equally, all objects of mind and body. Not getting into a state of imbalance. This poise of mind. Equanimity comes through the practice of meditation, and it also comes through certain reflections, especially in our dealings with other people. Generally, that's what throws, throws off our equanimity, one way or the other, when we're, when we're having relationships with other people. And reflecting upon the law of karma, and realizing that all beings are the heirs of their actions, makes the mind very detached, very equanimous, right? no longer upset by somebody doing something unwholesome, because we realize how the law of calm is working and we react with compassion rather than anger, with an even state of mind. Understanding the law of karma and how it's working, how we are each going to inherit the fruit of our own deeds, our own actions, 
very much causes this factor of equanimity to arise. It is not to be understood as indifference, but rather impartiality, right? not judging, acceptance. Sort of the, the expression of it in the I Ching would be the receptive. Right? Receiving all things equally. This is the factor of equanimity. Mindfulness, wisdom, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are the seven factors of enlightenment, which all have to be developed and ripened and matured. And when they are all in balance, it's out of those qualities that the moment of enlightenment can take place. It's interesting that three of the factors are arousing ones. Wisdom, energy, and rapture are those factors which, which arouse us and, and wake us up and activate us. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity are tranquilizing factors. They keep us calm and balanced. And it's achieving the equilibrium or poise between these active factors and the tranquilizing ones to achieve that perfect pitch of evenness. That's what the spiritual path is about, balancing all these factors. Three which arouse, three which activate, and three which tranquilize or make calm. And the one factor which has the function to keep the others in balance is mindfulness, the first of the factors of enlightenment. It's said that all of these factors are like the rafters on the roof of a house, and that all the rafters are sloping towards the peak. All the factors of enlightenment are sloping towards nirvana. As we're developing them, as we're cultivating, as we're cultivating them, the mind is sloping towards enlightenment. That's the direction in which we're flowing. All the different techniques and methods and concepts and elaborations are simply different ways of cultivating one or more or all of these factors of enlightenment. It has nothing to do with tradition or culture or religion. It has to do with these states of mind. And these states of mind are potential in all beings. spiritual path is very much the evolving of these seven factors of mind, these seven qualities, which are all leading towards more and more light, leading towards more and more understanding, culminating in enlightenment, culminating in freedom. Any questions? Mm -hmm.
Indifference means not caring. You don't care. You're, you're just sitting back and you don't care what happens to people or, or to things around you. Impartiality is very much caring, very much involved, but with an even mind, without a, without a bias or a prejudice, right? without, a, without a partiality in the mind. We, there was an interesting question. Uh, yesterday, somebody brought up, they were, he was a teacher, right? And he said, how to deal with the fact that just naturally there are some students in class which are really, they're easy to teach and lovable and you really get off on them, no trouble. And there are the difficult ones, you know, which are just causing a lot of trouble all the time. And this natural reaction to favor, to favor the easy and nice ones and to, to show disfavor, right? not intentionally, but as a natural reaction to the ones who cause a lot of, a lot of difficulty. Equanimity is just that factor which treats both those kinds of people equally. Right? Not indifferently, not, not stepping back and not caring about either one, but treating them with impartiality, not favoring the one over the other. And it's that quality of equanimity, of, of total acceptance, of receptivity to everything that's happening, or to everyone. Right? That's this factor of equanimity. Does that... situation, but with a balanced mind. Okay. That a lot of people have the, have the feeling, and this has been expressed very often, that when you meditate, you become a vegetable. <laughs> right? You're sitting down, and just by a quick review of the factors of enlightenment, it's quite clear that it's not becoming a vegetable at all. It's the cultivating of very, very active and penetrating and calming states of mind, right? It's a very luminous consciousness. It's not a gray, dark, murky area. It's a consciousness full of light, full of activity, full of equanimity and tranquility, right? That balance of mind. And one can act very, very effectively in the world with all those factors developed. It does not mean withdrawal. It means balance. Is this thing an example uh, for this teacher and these uh, noisy kids in the quiet ones, let's say, 
that he wouldn't impartially give them all A's in proportion, but with his balanced mind, he'd give some A's and others F's. It was not so much a question of evaluation as how to deal with them. In other words, not dealing with love for some and anger for others. Dealing with each situation in an appropriate fashion, but with this impartial mind, not... Well, then, impartial is referring to the affect, to the love-hate. That, that's a big one. Well, it, 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 it refers to... It refers to the whole range of our reactions. If he were giving out ice cream uh, to the kids, could he decide to give it as a reward only to the good ones and withhold it? Depends on his state of mind. He could do that with a state of great equanimity. He could do it with a, a state of grudge also. Well, it all depends on the mind involved, not in the action. Yeah, I think I guess if he uses the same yardstick, whatever it is, for all. Right. Okay. You know, we were talking about uh, mindfulness in the first one, and you mentioned uh, impersonal process. Whenever, like, I get confused with impersonal process because, like, whenever you sit there and say it's impersonal, impersonal can only take place when you have itself. Therefore, you know, it seems to me that you sit there and trying to get to, you know, having a trip trying to get to this place where you have no self. Okay, let me... There is no self in the first place. Whether you think there is or there isn't, there isn't, right? Self is just a concept, so there is no place of not-self to get to, because it is right now. Right now, in all of us, what's happening is this flow of impersonal process. That's not a state to achieve, because that's a characteristic of the present moment in everyone. There's nothing to get rid of. That all that we have to do is to stop creating that concept moment to moment. And that happens in every moment of mindfulness. In other words, every moment of, of observing the breath, just simply being aware of the in-breath and the out-breath, without adding to that awareness this extraneous concept of I am breathing. Right? If the mind is just silently observing it, there's no self, there's no I, it's just this process going on. The self is an added concept which at times, and very often when we're not mindful, it's an extraneous concept which is added to the process. And in every moment of mindfulness, we are experiencing the state of selflessness. Right? Because it's just a concept in the first place. There's, there was one one nice quote which you mentioned yesterday by an author uh, called Wei Wu Wei. He was talking about this whole idea of the self. He said, it's like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. Right? Through, through mindfulness, we can be observant both of our barking and of the thought process which conceives of the self, right? just to be aware of that as another part of the process, right? not identifying with that either, just to see it arising in passing away. Mm -hmm.
They're all, things are not happening randomly in our minds or bodies or the universe. There are, there are causes behind everything happening. All of, the, all of these factors, right, there is a continuity of process. Right, depending upon this moment arises, arises the qualities of the next moment. Right? Nothing which is carried over, but this law of dependent origination. So what we do now becomes the cause of the next moment arising, the qualities of the next moment. Right? So I, I'm confused about the, continu the continuation and non-continuation. You say that there, there is no... Okay, for an example. There is a continuity. There is a continuity of process. Think back to 10 years ago. Right? Your body has completely changed. Everything the cell, on the cellular level. Right? There is no element of the body which was then and is now. Right? A complete transformation. The mind has changed many, many more times. There is absolutely not a single particle of us which we can point to at this moment and say it was 10 years ago complete change but what we were then and every successive moment has been the cause of this present moment arising so there is a law of a law of causality involved of this of this dependent origination depending upon that this arises nothing which is carried over but there is a continuity in this process does that so, I don't know, like on the physiological level, there must be somewhere that memories are stored in the molecular structure, you know, and some scars. Yeah, but even those, even those molecules are in constant change. There is no element which remains the same, although one of the functions, either on the molecular level or, or psychic level, has the function to remember. Right? But this very factor of memory in each moment is arising and passing away. It has the function to remember all the previous objects. Mm -hmm. right? And that's why people who have developed very great power of mind, high, high degrees of samadhi, can remember many past lives. Mm -hmm. right? But at each moment, all the elements are in flux. So it's just it's passed on to total state of equanimity, no ego. I've been wondering about this for a long time. Is it possible to love anybody more than anybody else? Okay. Love means a lot of different things, right? The most prevalent meaning of the word for most people is a very attached, possessive kind of feeling. There was some teacher in India called a businessman's love. Right? I love you, and I'll get something in return for it. Right? You'll love me. So that's, that's a low-level kind of love. There's another kind of love which is developed universally. Universal loving feeling for all beings. A Christ-like love or Buddha love. Right? 
a very high degree of love, not it's probably much more love than we have ever experienced, but not for any particular being, but for all beings. Okay? That's another kind of love. Another kind of love beside that is the kind of love which is experienced when you experience non-self, right? When you experience the emptiness of I, when there is no I, there is no other. So there is no distinction and no separation between beings. You experience a unity. And that unity is a very high kind of love. Right? Because there's no division. There's no I love you. But rather it, it's the love of, of oneness. Within the context of these different kinds of love, there can be very special karmic relationships. Right? Due to our past associations, not only in this life, but perhaps over many lifetimes, we have a very special affinity for special beings, right? for certain beings. And so a special relationship is evolved. But our love is not finite. If I give, it's not a question of giving all my love to this one particular being with whom I have a special relationship and not having any left over. Right? Can love all beings equally with a very high degree of love and still be involved in a special relationship due to this affinity through past association. It's, it's a karmic unfolding. You know, because of certain actions in the past which, with which we've been involved with, with certain specific people, so there's that natural drawing together. And it is it part of evolving to be not necessarily, depending on the state of mind involved in the relationship. It could be a growing on the path, and it could be a hindrance, depending on how we're relating to that, to that relationship in the moment. the same. <coughs> same thing. Awareness means being aware or noticing the object in each present moment or being mindful of it. I use the word simultaneous, not simultaneous, uh, synonymously. No. Well, I'm using them synonymously. I mean, I suppose they could be used in a different way, you know, depending on depending on the person who's using them. Okay, it's it's defining the words in a different way. Yeah. 
in the sense that, in the sense of being a factor of enlightenment, I am using it to express the same idea of not allowing the mind to forget. Right? The opposite of awareness is ignorance, not knowing. Or the opposite of mindfulness is not knowing, not right? forgetfulness. So I'm using them in just the same way. I, I don't know the distinction that, that, that is made between those two in Tantra. But let me say that, that awareness or mindfulness in the process of meditation, it goes through some very interesting changes and that may be the difference that they're talking about. In the beginning of the practice, what's involved is mindfulness of what it is that's happening, right? The breath or the sensations or the thought, mindfulness of the what. As the mindfulness grows, as that factor grows, at some stage of insight, there comes an intuitive leap, so to speak, from awareness of the content to awareness of the process. Right? Not so much involved then in what it is that's happening, but in the flow of how it's happening. Right? And that may be that, that higher awareness, which is, which is talked about. Right? But it's the same factor. But instead of, instead of dealing with the content of what the object is, it deals, its primary focus is on the arising and vanishing, on the process of it. Most things I've read, uh, mindfulness is just compared to the, the place where there's effort put into it, and awareness develops from that where there's no effort, it's just mm-hmm. automatic. You, could, you can use those words, mindfulness itself becomes effortless, and if you want, you could call that stage of mindfulness awareness. If you, but it's the, same, it's the same function of mind. Right, the same thing is happening. Yeah. The process and not the product. It's very creative. It is a very creative state of mind. In fact, this balance that's achieved is very much the balance of yin and yang, right? Of creativity in the sense of active awareness and receptive in the state of, in the sense of equanimity and impartiality. You know, it's that perfect, that perfect unity of balance. It seems to me that um, I experience, I'm sure other people do too, uh, moments of enlightenment, or moments of awareness of mindfulness, and then it escapes me, and, and either relations with other people, I'll get pulled off. Okay, there, there were two things in what you said. One is that, that moments of mindfulness are not moments of enlightenment in the, in the highest sense, although they, in a lesser sense of the word, they are enlightening, right? Because enlightenment goes beyond. You give up the wholesome factors as well as the unwholesome. It's a beyond-the-mind experience. But that experience of the effortlessness of awareness, of mindfulness, is exactly what happens. In the beginning, it happens for a moment or two moments in an hour, and three moments and four moments, until the factor is, is well cultivated. And then it's just flowing along very effortlessly. 
Meditation does not mean sitting. That, that's, a, that's a great uh, division we make. Meditation means awareness. And it's in sitting or walking or creating or eating or sleeping. Right? Not erase the last part. Are you mindful in your dreams? At times one can be mindful of dreaming, right? of the dream state. When the mindfulness is, is well developed, you can be aware that you're dreaming. Okay. In deep sleep, there's no mindfulness. There's no knowing of the object there. Um, I just have something to say about um, what the sort of state of mind in which you describe, in which one realizes that uh, there's no permanent self. Okay. I think I remember you said um, if, if you're mindful in a certain way, you become aware of bringing a bear, bringing to bear in your experience a concept of self. And once you realize that you're bringing that to bear and that you needn't, um, you're sort of become by that aware that there is no self. Now, sort of in any, you know, my idea is through in any cognitive experience, you, one could become aware of using concepts to describe experience. But I think the idea is that fact alone doesn't show that the concepts which are brought to bear don't have true application. And for instance, if one, any concept at all, no matter what it is, has true application, you could become aware in the same way as you described with the concept of self of bringing to bear of it. But that doesn't show the concept has no application. Okay. There was one thing you said in um, which was not not exactly what I had said or meant to convey. Uh, in the sense that when one is mindful, the concept of self is not present by definition. Right? Because mindfulness means being aware of the object without this identification. Right? That, that's what being mindful in this sense means. Just bear attention on the object. The validity or non-validity of the concept of self does not have to be accepted or believed or anything. When one experiences the flow of impermanence, the fact that the mind-body process is in this continual state of flux, the experience is one of the fact that there is no abiding element or entity that everything is just vanishing in the moment. And it's out of that experience that the concept of something permanent 
is seen to be simply a concept, right? Not not applicable to the process of what is actually happening. Does that answer in any way what you were saying? Well, I just I just think I have to imagine. <laughs> 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 um, when you explain uh, rapture uh, and having a lack in yourself, and knowing and finding it in the other, and then filling yourself with it, um, sometimes you're motivated by that. I, I didn't understand that. Oh, okay, when you're thirsty and you go and get a glass of water and you fill yourself up with a glass of water and there you are. Um, but you put it much more poetically with the oasis and everything. It's the, no, the rapture was the interest in the object. Uh-huh. Well, it's, it, okay, it's, I was saying it's a lack in yourself, so you go and seek it in the other, right? No, it's... It, fill yourself with it. No, it's, it's not the, it's the... It's interesting that the distinction is made between rapture and happiness, okay? Rapture is the interest in the, ob- in the object, and the happiness is the experiencing. In other words, when that guy in the desert saw the lake, his mind was filled with rapture. When he was in the lake... Desire is another factor, and it, it could have been desire, in the sense of greed or clinging, or it could not have. It could have just been this, this interest free of, of greed. depending on his evolution of mind. The happiness, the factor of happiness is that of the enjoyment of the object. So rapture and happiness are two different factors. And what you were talking about seems very much to be the factor of happiness. That is the enjoyment of the object, which is a different quality than the interest in the object. Sometimes you're the person who seems very, very empty and totally receptive and feel that you have to you have to drink a glass of water. It's really disconcerting to feel that way <laughs> because, you know, what especially if you yourself are feeling empty, you know, somebody has to take the initiative. You know, it's very tension causing to try and be other than what you are in the moment. To try and relate to people how you think will be the most fulfilling or whatever is a very difficult place to be in. We can only be what we are in the moment, right? And that's the the most effective way of filling, right, another being. Just, Just being very open and honest and totally into what we are in that moment, right? Yeah. Having, an, uh, having an image of oneself of which or to which we're trying to live up to <laughs> is, very, is a very uh, tense place, right? Because is, there's this dichotomy of how we are in the moment and this image of how we think we should be. And that's not at all the, that's not at all the path of awareness, which, which is just being mindful, being aware of how it is that we happen to be in each present moment. Okay? And that unfolds by itself. That cultivates all these factors of enlightenment and compassion and love by itself, the awareness of the present moment, not by creating some image, I should be filled with love, right, if you're filled with anger, 
<laughs> it's to be aware of the anger. And the awareness or the mindfulness takes care of everything else. How do you deal then with you personally? How do you deal with people who try to tell you the way you should be? You know, I kind of want to know your personal response. Like, I'm thinking of people, Jesus Greeks, who tell you, you should be this way, or people who think they've had enlightenment experiences and tell you, this is the way it is, and this is the way you should be. You listen. You know, and, and what's useful in what's being said, you integrate. And what's not useful, you just let slip on. It's simple. It's not, there need not be any reaction to the, to the style or personality, you know, of the person saying it. But just this state of receptivity to the Dharma coming out, whatever quality. Right? And what, what's good, one uses, and what's not good, you know, but, but without any reaction. Right? Who makes the choice? You do. You. And that's what the Buddha said. He said, see for yourself what's good for you. Right? Don't believe anything because someone says it or because it's in the books. Out of your own experience, see what qualities are helpful to yourself. Right? I don't know if you think sometimes where like a certain person will bring you down. You know, and I have like I know sometimes I'm putting expectations on myself thinking I should be a certain way and I should be able to be in a certain uh, receptive and certain to let it go. Sometimes it gets really familiar. That's when we discussed last time about how in the beginning it's really important to protect this tree, this 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 young sapling of awareness of mindfulness, right? And in the beginning, it's really helpful to associate, to associate with the wise. That is, with, with people who are aware and mindful and calm, right? When possible, you know. After these, quali after these factors of enlightenment are developed, you can be any place. Like, nobody will bring you down. Right? Right, so the all, there is one answer to all questions, and that is to be mindful of what's happening. <laughs> it's easy to teach this. As a preliminary device, centering device, it could be useful. You know, it brings you right back to the present moment. As a preliminary device, right? Because really when the mindfulness is strong, you will be saying, here I am now, and being aware of that is just another thought. Right? Because that's all it is. It's a thought in the mind. Just in the very beginning, you can use that thought to, to really ground yourself, okay? But it's not a place you want to get hung up in, right, or stay. After being centered or grounded or based, 
then experience the process of what's happening. Right? When you're saying, here I am now, you're not experiencing the breathing because it's a thought process going on. Right? So it, it could be used as a, just as a help you know, in the beginning, but once centered, then use that place of centeredness to develop awareness of what's going on. What's the distinction between equanimity and tranquility? Okay, they're closely related. Tranquility is coolness. Cooling out. That's the function of it. The function of equanimity is this impartiality, not judging. But they come together. They they have two separate functions, but they're they're often uh, in the same moment. It seemed like a little while ago, like, someone was talking about absorption, like meditation, and just sitting but, but being absorbed in poetry or, or music or something like that. And it seems to me we're combining experience with absorption. It's the opposite of mindfulness. And the fact that when you're absorbed, no longer is there you or the object, but all your senses are cut off because you're in such involvement with it. Yeah. You know, whereas mindfulness is totally the opposite. It's not totally the opposite in the sense that in mindfulness, there's no you and the object either. Yeah, but you're not, it's not because you've worked yourself up to a certain point where everything else is shut off. Right. In, in that kind of, of creative state, there is probably more samadhi than mindfulness, although they both can be there. But with that one-pointedness, perhaps predominant. Right? There can still be awareness associated with it, but it's, it's a question of predominance of factors, right? And this absorption into what you're doing to the exclusion of everything else is a characteristic of a high degree of one-pointedness that could be associated with mindfulness or it could not. When a cat is about to pounce on a mouse, it's very one-pointed, right? really concentrated. There's no mindfulness there. Right? In, in the case of an artist who's in the creative act, there can be both. There can be concentration and also awareness. That's why a lot of, especially in the Zen tradition, so many of the Zen masters were very great artists, right? Very spontaneously creative. Very one-pointed in the moment, very aware. Awareness does not mean duality. There's that idea in the beginning that there's someone who's being mindful. That's because in the beginning there is an effort needed. When it becomes effortless, this awareness is just flowing on, and there's not this sense of I and object at all. It's just this flowing on of the process. Right? The awareness happening in every experience. No separation at all. Does absorption imply uh, a sense of self? Not necessarily. Concentration is an interesting factor because it's ethically neutral. It can be associated with wholesome states. It can be associated with unwholesome states. Right. So it depends on the particular mind involved. To do any act, you need a certain degree of concentration. It could be associated with greed, hatred, and delusion, or the concentration could be linked up with wisdom and love and generosity. Well, concentration is a clear process, but absorption implies something being absorbed, no? No, 
absorption is the end result of concentration. In other words, absorbed into the object. The mind absorbed in the object. Isn't that the self? Sense of self? Not necessarily. For example, the Buddha and many, many enlightened beings attain these high states of samadhi. But it's seen as just another process. It's the process of one-pointedness of mind, the working of that mental factor. People who are not enlightened and experience that could very well take that to be self, which is why samadhi development alone is not sufficient for enlightenment. It has to be co-joined with wisdom, with awareness, to see the samadhi aspect as another process. In one of your past classes, you said that there was a kind of a causal relation between uh, your conduct and then the opportunity to... Between what? The conduct, your department, and, uh, the opportunity to come into contact to learn the Dharma and some area of wisdom or understanding in, and relationship mm-hmm. and, and uh, being able to understand the Dharma once you come in contact with it. Well, if, you, if there's... What's the margin between enough wisdom to be able to once you come into contact with the Dharma, understand it, and escaping that kind of karmic relation. You mean, and not having enough wisdom to understand it? I didn't understand the last part. Well, what's, what is the margin between having enough wisdom to uh, accumulate it in either past lives or in your past life to um, assuming you come into contact with someone who can teach you the Dharma or or you yourself through some method mm-hmm. understanding it and a understanding that is transcendent of karmic relations samsara. I don't understand the question. I, I get up to that last point and I, I don't know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, understanding you uh, do escape the causal relations, right? No. You do, don't you? I mean... No. In other words, the Buddha was still subject to the law of karma, although he was not creating any new karma, right? But the whole remainder of his life after enlightenment was the unfolding of all his past... of his past karmic deeds. And so he got sick and he had backaches and... His mind was... his mind was perfectly balanced. His mind was not generating any new karma as a reaction to that, but everything that happened to him after his enlightenment was the result of his past deeds. It was, it was his old karma coming to fruition. So he became one with the law of karma, not creating any more, not, not, having, not adding any more fuel to the fire, not creating any deeds which would cause rebirth again, because there was no desire there. Uh, I'd like to do the eating meditation today. How many did not bring something to you? Uh, share. Mind and body involved, of which we're mostly unaware. So developing eating as a meditative practice, a lot of insight develops 
both into the ultimate nature of the mind-body process and also into our very conditioned reactions to food. Generally, we eat very mechanically, unaware of what's going on in our minds with regard to the food. So, in eating mindfully, the idea is to be aware of each distinct process as it arises and passes away, to see the flow of impermanence in the process of eating. And there are many, many things which happen. The first process involved is that of seeing the food. Seeing is one thing. Arising because of the seeing is the intention to move the arm, to reach for the food. The intention is a mental process, and the intention should be noticed. Intending to reach the food. As an effect of that intention is the movement of the arm. A different process. Seeing, intending, moving, all separate processes arising and passing away. Okay, so there's the moving of the arm. When you reach the food, there's a touching sensation. A different process again. There's the moving of the arm, the touching of the food. The intention to lift the arm, that's a mental process. That intention to lift should be noticed. As an effect of that cause, of that intention, is the whole lifting movement. That moving can be the object of meditation. It's interesting. People get enlightened. People experience nirvana or go into samadhi just in the process of moving their arm. The mind can get very, very still if you're mindful. Just lifting, lifting being aware of that flow of movement. Next comes the intention to open the mouth, right? a mental process. Then the opening of the mouth. And then the intending to put the food in, and the putting in. All should be done very mindfully. The closing of the mouth. Okay, before one begins to chew, the arm should be withdrawn unless you want to eat, like, with the arm in this position, right? Always distinguishing very clearly the processes involved. So you put the food in, you close the mouth, you withdraw the arm, the intention to chew, and the whole movement of chewing, the touching sensation of the food in the mouth, the taste which arises as you begin to chew. Chewing is one thing. The touch sensation is another thing. The tasting is another thing. All separate processes arising and passing away. Taste is a very interesting thing, to become very aware of how taste arises. Because what happens is that after the first few chews, we, we exhaust the taste in the food. Right? And out of a very unmindful desire for more taste, while we're still chewing, the hand is reaching for more. <laughs> There's still food in the mouth. And unknowingly and mechanically, our hand is down, getting ready more food to put into the mouth for more taste. Right? When you're really eating mindfully, you follow each process through of chewing and the touch feeling and the tasting and the swallowing, and then being aware of the intention again to move the arm, right? and the touching of the food and the intention to lift and the lifting and the opening and the putting and the closing and putting down. Mindful eating means being aware of all these processes involved. 
all the the very keen awareness of the fact that it's just mental, physical happenings arising and passing away with no one behind them. Right? The moving is just moving and the awareness of it. The tasting is, is the tasting and the knowing of it. No one who is tasting, no one who is eating. Right? Through a very keen awareness of this whole process, you begin to see the impersonality of this process. And it's a very important one because a quite unbelievable part of our lives revolves about the satisfaction of our desire for taste. Right? So it's very interesting to become aware of it, to become mindful. So why don't we... Why don't we yeah. Does that mean that you can be only mindful? The, the intention should be noticed when it's predominant. That is, in radical changes of posture or movement. In other words, you don't have to notice the intention, the continual intention, right? Although it's there, but it's not predominant. So you want to be mindful of the predominant? Right, right. It's predominant in the sense before you lift because it is the cause of the lifting, right? It's a cause-effect relationship, okay? So you're exercising discrimination while you're doing this? You're, the rule, there are 17 trillion mind moments, it is said, in the flash of an instant, right? It is impossible for anyone less than a Buddha to be aware of them all. What we're doing is to cultivate mindfulness of what's predominant. Okay? I wonder if that's the difference, like uh, we were talking about earlier, between mindfulness and awareness, just the terms when you talked about going into the flow. Like at first you're aware of one thing or one movement at a time, and then it works into uh, more of an awareness of everything that's going on. Because like it's... It's pretty, you know, you can't, you can't always uh, eat and walk and... and okay. You can do it always mindfully, but it's not to understand that mindfulness means always acting slowly. Does the process of noting uh, one thing at a time lead into, like, uh, well, the example, I think I talked to you about this once before, but like cooking breakfast, you know, like first you got to make a good cup of coffee before you can do the eggs and the bacon and the toast and everything at the same time. <laughs> there are two kinds of mindfulness involved. One is this very intensive development in which you're noticing each process very clearly, right? The other kind is called a general mindfulness. You're not necessarily picking up each individual process, but have this general cover of awareness. So you're doing a lot of things. You're cooking breakfast and making tea and scrambling the eggs, right? And a lot of actions happening at once, not picking up each particular one individually, but with a general cover of mindfulness. And that serves to protect the mind from unwholesome qualities arising. In other words, you're not necessarily this very moment-to-moment mindfulness, but if greed or hatred should arise, immediately the mindfulness would pick it up, right? It's just like a, a, a cover of light, which would immediately illuminate any unwholesome factor arising. So it's a great protection. In the development of mindfulness as a, a very intensive practice, right, then it should be done in this very slow, careful, methodical way. Right? Because then you develop very deep insight into the nature of the process. When it's developed, you can do it very quickly. Right? Now we're starting really slowly. After, after it's developed, you can eat at a normal pace, mindfully. 
It's like learning to practice a difficult piece on the piano. You don't start out playing it first. Right? You start out playing it slowly until you learn it. When it's learned, then you play at its normal speed. So let's see. All the processes involved, right? seeing, intending to reach, and the moving, and the touching, and the intending to lift, and the lifting, intention to open the mouth, and the opening, and the intention to put it in, and putting in and the closing, the intention to remove the arm, no chewing yet, <laughs> and the removing of the arm, <laughs> the intention to chew and the chewing, and the tasting, the feeling of touch, Swallowing. And again, the whole process repeated. With the food in the mouth, right? Experience each part of the process fully. Permanence of taste, how it just comes in a moment, in less a moment, and, and vanishes. You can get enlightened eating, right? if there's mindfulness, with all those factors present. whatever the experience is, to experience it fully. In other words, people spend a long time preparing very delicious meals, and we sit down and we're mindful of the first couple of moments, and after that the mind is just off and running a million miles away, eating very mechanically, not at all aware, not at all in the present moment of, of the eating and the tasting of the food, right? because the mind is not on what's happening. This, this meditation really brings us right back to the present moment, experiencing with a fullness what it is that's happening. It takes so much less to satisfy. Very much. We really become sensitive to, much more so, to the actual needs of the body, because it's not done mechanically out of a desire for more taste. It's a very regulating and balancing process. In this slow In the beginning, that is offered as a possible aid, just to keep the mind on the object. After some time, that falls away, because in fact, it's just another process happening. Right? And if it's an obstacle, there's no need. The important thing is the awareness. Right? So for a person with a very wandering mind, verbalizing helps to keep the mind on, what, on what's happening. Right? It's, a, it's a preliminary aid. It, it's just directing the thought process. In other words, if thoughts are going to be going on, 
better that the thought process should be directed to what's happening than off someplace, you know. But there's no need. Like, if you can stay aware without that, it's the experience of it which is important. Yeah. I find that my mind always finds something that's away from the <laughs> You know, even if it is just a verbalizing, it's always one step removed. And it, it just seems very hard to, to, to come back. It's not easy. <laughs> but but the, the slow cultivation of mindfulness, that factor grows. Until it becomes effortless. Right? Why doesn't the mind want to do that? Because... <laughs> The example of training the mind, I know that we mentioned here, is like in the East, they, they use the example of training a wild monkey. And they capture a monkey which has just all its life been used to jumping around wherever it wants. Mm-hmm. So, so they capture this wild monkey and want to tame it. Yeah? They tie it on a long rope to a stake. And it still keeps jumping around because, because of its conditioning. Each time it tries to jump away, it's restrained by the rope. Right? And maybe for a month, it keeps jumping. Okay, let's walk for a bit. Okay, 10 or 15 minutes today. Start out with the breathing, watching the rising and falling of the inner, being aware of the sitting posture during the gap between the out breath and the next in breath, being aware of sensations as they arise in the body, wherever they become predominant, being aware of thoughts as they arise or intentions to shift or to change position, any movement of the body. It should all be very rhythmical, not not a pouncing or a grasping at the object, but very much a sitting back with a very great attentiveness and observing the flow of all these phenomena arising and passing away. Very rhythmically, very easy, very even, very mindful. If visual images should come, then there should be a note made of seeing, not getting involved in the content of them, but in the fact, in the process of seeing. To note seeing, seeing, observe that coming there also, observing the impermanence. And again, back to the breathing. The breath, the in-out or the rising feeling is the primary object, okay? Whenever, whenever there is nothing else very strong, we should center ourselves with the awareness of the breath. Very easy, very relaxed, <coughs> very clearly attentive. We'll sit for about 25 minutes today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.